0: His name is John Sutton. his book is Beyond Command and Control, and in this conversation we learn about what action is worse, command or control. We will also hear about failure demand, the opposite of command and control, the destructive nature of setting targets, and the bad and the ugly of budget management. John Sutton, his book is Beyond Command and Control. That visit is coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. John Sutton is the founder of the Vanguard Method. And if somebody wanted the long 15-second summary of John's book as I was riding up in an elevator, here's what I'd say. I'd say it's a way of looking at your business from the outside in as a system where everyone is working together. I wanted to know if I got that synopsis correct.
1: Uh, I would just say, uh, well, I think it's a better way to make the work work. Uh, You know, that might cause a little curiosity. You know, it's interesting listening to what you're talking about, you know, when you consumed You know, everything that i published, well, you know, that's a a great... I mean, if you were a chief executive of a big company, uh, then you'd probably become a client because you've shown curiosity. You know, the curious person goes and finds out more for themselves. And, you know, that's a lot about how our work comes. You you cannot push this work because you're seen as criticising current management. It has to be pulled by the managers who are into... Well, you know, mankind invented management. We can change it. So let's change it for the better.
0: And we're going to come back to that because that is a very important point. Mm. I do love origin stories. And when I read the book the first time, and I think even the second time, I did not realize it wasn't until prepping for this interview, you are an occupational psychologist. And I'm thinking, oh, This explains a little bit. You see the world a lot differently from those of us who have maybe a finance background, an MBA background. So I'm just telling you, I have a bias in thinking that you have a maybe a better way of thinking about the way business behaves.
1: You want well, be I don't a- know that it's better. But in terms of origins, you know, as an occupational psychologist in the mid-80s, I got a, a research project to do for a big company on why is it that their TQM programme failed. You know, they spent millions on it, it failed. So I had to read all the books by the gurus. And at the same time, I'm I'm studying the organisation because you can't talk about a failure without knowing what good looks like because I'm interviewing managers on how do things really work. Uh, and I was I was starting to realise they talk about what they do, which is not the same as how they work. Um, and, but it was Deming's book, uh, one of the quality gurus, that really turned me on. He said that humankind invented management; we can change it. We need to run our organisations and systems. Uh, in and out of the crisis, he describes the, the trouble we get into with bad thinking. Uh, and I could see it all in front of me in, in the service organisation I'm working in, but he didn't give me the answer. I didn't know what to do on Monday you know, so I started researching all the systems literature and I drew a blank there and I thought, well, OK, I'm going to have to work it out. Um, and so from the mid 80s, I started working it out.
0: And 40 some odd years later, is dimming. in your opinion, still right?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if you were to ask me um, what was the only book I would recommend, it would be Out of the Crisis. It's a must read book.
0: And there's going to be one of those bullet points that we're going to talk about a little later, if we have time. Mm-hmm. It has to do with targets. You bring up targets in the book, yeah, and, and I've yeah. got I've got a very I would call it a provocative uh, question to ask you. Hey, before we yeah. get in, before we get into the book, yeah, well, let's assume you're doing a TED talk or a TEDx talk, or you're, some event where the audience doesn't know you that well. And let's say you start out your presentation with a question. And your question is, in your opinion, what is command and control? I actually want the answer to a second question I'm going to ask, but I need to set it up with this one. So you ask the audience, in your opinion, and you open it up, what, in your opinion, is command, what will most people say
1: well i don't know I, I i do this i get a show of hands you know how many how many people think you know the problem with command and control is is the command word the bosses are too bossy and you get quite a lot of hands and you say well, how many people think it's the control word you get very few well you know and this is this is part of the sort of popular myth about management that it's all about people no way it's all about the system You know, and I know there are times when bosses ought to be bossy. But the problem with command and control is the control word. How we design and manage and control our organizations. That's the problem.
0: And the reason I had to ask this question, John, is is I have studied your book. And it's a book Mm -hmm. I highly recommend uh, to people I work with. I need you to maybe help shift my mind a little bit. The clients that you get, you talked about push-pull. The clients yeah. you get have probably been referred to you. They are pre-inclined. They're predisposed. Uh, their mind is ready. The the student is ready. So if there is a little bit of a control mindset, they're probably ready to let it go. The question yeah. I've been dying to ask you since I knew we we get to do this interview is there are some people that – that control there, there's there we've heard the term control freak and even yeah. though i do believe that undoing control is a cognitive uh, ability cuz we choose to control we choose not to control yeah. Yeah. so it's cognitive but there's also that that instinct some people just naturally want to control
1: yeah
0: how do we how do we deal with people or do you just walk away well, do we do, what's the what's the solution well, yeah, it's, to it's, it's,
1: If if I get that behavior in front of me, if I'm feeling rather chippy, I might say, well, I'm offering you an opportunity for you to go into your organization and understand how your current controls are not controlling. In fact, they're making performance worse. Now, are you up for that? the more general point, though, Mark, is that most of our work comes on a pool basis. A lot of it is previous clients. They know what we do, they know how it works, they they know it's fast, they know it needs facilitation or organisation. you know we don't do it, we get them to do it, that's how they learn. So most of our work comes like that. There are times when we get people who kind of go, oh, we've heard you're fantastic, you know, come along and pitch to us and we, you know, and we talk about, well, the first thing we've got to do is to take you out so you can understand what's wrong with your current system. And they kind of go, oh, no, 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 no. no. We don't need to do that. You can go and help our people and improve stuff. Uh, and then we say, well, no, in which case we can't, we can't start because if we start like that, there'll be a train crash. and We don't want to be part of a train crash, you know, you, Basically, you are the problem. Uh, And if you're not prepared to rethink management, then there's no point in us working with you.
0: Do you have a favorite definition of command and control in the workplace?
1: Well, I thought, you know, I think probably what I ought to do is read the definition in the book. Um, Okay, command and control management is a top down perspective in which work is divided into functional specialisms, decision making is separated from the work. Measures in use are related to budget and arbitrary. Uh, Management's role is to make the numbers and manage the people. Workers' motivation is assumed to be extrinsic carrots and sticks. And the attitude to suppliers and customers is contractual. That's quite a long definition, but it's a good operational definition. I mean, basically, the whole ethos of command and control is control. Uh, And the approach to change is let's have plans benefit analysis, project management, and all that malarkey.
0: I want to say something to the listener is when you get the book, you will see what John just read in a list of bullet points. Uh, I've highlighted every one of those bullet points. There is one of those bullet points. I think it's very subtle. It's very subtle. And it may be, John, the most important bullet point. Um, yeah, managing by the numbers. Yes, that's we get that. But one of the subtle comments is when the decision making is separated from the work. Mm-hmm. To yeah. me, that is neon lights, exclamation mm-hmm. points, stars. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And those decisions are made on the wrong information. It's all. It's all cost. Information it gets you into deep trouble.
0: And what would you say then is the opposite of command and control? If we've got that list, what would be the opposite? Right. And by the way, I, I already have. I I write from the book. I have something that I believe is the opposite, but I want to hear from from you.
1: Okay, <laughs> well, I could give you a test. You know, as you've read the book, but it's a well, basically instead of top down. But the perspective is going to be outside in. And instead of designing working functional specialisms, you're going to design against demand. Um, so it's all about how, how you understand demand from a customer and design a system that can deal with that demand in the most efficacious way. Uh, and the extraordinary thing is that when you do that, your costs fall and your customers are happier. Right, now, uh, instead of controlling it with the budget, you need work controls, controls that tell you about how well the work's working, and they're used where the work happens. You know? So uh, the attitude to customers is not contractual. The attitude is what matters. Okay? And the attitude to suppliers is you work as part of our system, and we're going to teach you how to work as part of a system. So those are are some of the basic differences. Of course, the other main difference, which we shouldn't ignore, is that when you move to a systems design, you get rockingly good numbers. Uh, And the interesting thing is that uh, you know uh, that that your numbers are going to improve. You know the direction, but you don't know the scale. You never know. But you end up with numbers you never would have put in a plan. So it doesn't require any plan. Uh, you're going to get, you know, things like operating costs fall by 20 to 50%. You know, uh, uh, customer retention goes up. Uh, uh, revenue goes up. Staff morale, up. Uh, you know, what's not to like? <laughs> but, you know, unfortunately, going back to you know, the conversation earlier, there are people at the top of organisations who care more about the deal they're on at the moment in their pocket than they care about their system. demi used to say this. Doesn't anyone care about profit? He used to say. Yeah,
0: Going back to what you said about the system, this is an opinion, and it's been many moons since I've been in school, but there was no class, there was no teaching on systems thinking. I don't know if MBA schools like Harvard or uh, your top business schools, let's take Oxford, do they teach in business? systems thinking, I, uh, I, I I just, in my opinion, again, opinion on the surface, I don't think there's enough teaching and education of systems thinking. Mm-hmm. And so there's sophistication bias that I don't yeah. get it. So I'm not, I don't want to talk. I don't want to have this conversation yeah. about it.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, and you, you know, what, you think about a hundred years ago. You know, there's a great discussion about what, what's the MBA going to be about. Is it going to be about artisanship? So, so people need to know a business to manage a business, or is it going to be a more generic or general? And of course, you know, they chose generic. They chose finance. So we school managers. It, organizations should be run by the finance function. It's completely absurd. Right. Um, but that's what we teach them, and um, we teach that in MBAs. You know, I have taught on a lot of uh, MBA programs, but it's like a, you know, it's, a, it's like a small special session, you know, let's have something a bit wacky and different. It's not core. Um, I think there's been a bit of a renaissance of systems thinking in general in the UK and in Europe, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of different systems thinkers Um and I, when I think about systems thinking and all the different brands and you know, disciplines and whatever, I think you've got to separate the interesting from the useful. And, and it, a lot of it is interesting, but it won't help you very much.
0: And I, and I would just say for, and we're going to move on, but for anyone who is intellectually curious or has some passionate curiosity about learning more, I would mm-hmm. say, start out with the book, the fifth discipline, uh, start with that book first. Cause I, I think, that may have been my first introduction some 15 18 years ago with systems mm-hmm. thinking but i want to move on this book again i used the word intellectually curious yeah it's a this is a great book and there are a lot of big ideas there're too many so it's like what what are we going to talk about i mean we where where do we start so i just thought you know what let me just pull from my notes what are some of my favorite big nuggets of ideas, so I'm just okay. going to I'm going to throw some at you. If that's okay, okay. let's have yeah, some. Yeah. So the the topic of failure demand. Yeah, what is it, and maybe a couple of examples of failure demand, John?
1: Well, okay, um, you think about any uh, transactional service organization. You know, So this could be a health system or a financial services organization or you know, someone's fixing your phone or whatever. Uh, all the managers running the front end of these systems worry about what I call the core paradigm. Uh, how many calls are coming in? How many people have I gone? How long do people take to do stuff? That's how they manage. Now, this is missing a fundamental issue, and that is that when you go and look at the demand coming in, there are two types of demand. Uh, one, they, they assume all the demands work to be done, but it's not. The one kind of demand is work to be done. That's value demand. That's why we're here, because someone wants a service and wants a problem solved, whatever it is. But the other type of demand is failure demand, which I define precisely as fa- uh, caused by a failure to do something or do something right for a customer. Now then, if you go into organisations like uh, telecoms, uh, utilities, you can find that up to 90% of the demand on the front end is failure demand. Well, holy shit. You know, uh, I mean, people recognise immediately, oh, that could be a big cost. Uh, and by definition, it's because your services aren't working. You know, so it's a very important lever. Now, kind of a lot of managers think, well, you know, faded demand. Well, that must be because the bloody people aren't doing them what they should or... Uh, <laughs> so, or the process no 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 it's the system that's the problem uh, they don't get that they think you've got to go out and measure it and manage it No, no 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 failure demand is a signal Okay. if you want to get rid of failure demand, indeed, if you want to eradicate it, then the only way to do that is to understand the nature of the value demand, the type and frequency, the predictability of the value demand, design a system that absorbs the variety of value demand, control it where the work's done, and then you will eradicate failure demand. And the economic prize is stupendous. And you think, why don't they all do this? Well, because it's such a challenge to the way they think.
0: And I'm going to add a footnote to what you just said from a customer's point of view or from a customer's yeah. perspective, which, by the way, you give plenty of examples of of including that into the conversation from the customer's perspective. Again, the, yeah. the the concept of failure demand, and I think that may have been one of the drivers of starting the Vanguard method, but again, it's just, it's, it's outstanding. Now let's go back. I mentioned we'll come to Deming. Now let's bring something up from his, uh, some of his points of view, his philosophy. What is it, the 16 points, or I can't remember how many of the 14, I think it was, 14. Mark, but
1: it doesn't matter. You know, he only wrote the 14 points because, you know, American management didn't want to do. So he thought, well, managers like a list, 14 points.
0: Well, one of them has to do with targets. Yeah. And you have a very strong point of view about targets. I want to hear your thought process on targets, the good, the bad, the ugly. And there may it's be... It's very
1: simple, very simple. Uh, tar- uh, targets always make performance worse, always, uh, because they are an arbitrary measure driven down a hierarchy. And so in systems terms, they'll always distort the system. Now, let's, let's move to intervention theory, because that's my first love. All right, now, So imagine I'm in a room uh, full of managers, conventional managers, and I say, oh, boys, I think there's a bit of a, they're usually boys, a bit of a problem with targets. And now their mental model goes to, yeah, yeah, maybe we don't set them right, maybe they're not stretch enough, maybe we need to involve the right people in setting them, that kind of stuff. And I go, no, 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 no. what targets do is they make performance worse and they go, you're the devil. You know, this can't be right. Uh, so so that's not a helpful way to go Uh, but you know part of the work the way the work starts if they're working with us is they get out and understand that that's true they get out study things we get them to see things they would not believe possible um and then they get it Uh, and then from there you know they start to be energized to think differently about the problems they've got but it's i mean Deming taught me this any arbitrary, any you know. So we're also talking about things like standard times, SLAs, budget management. Any arbitrary measure forced into a system will fuck the system. To put it scientifically,
0: you and again, I think one of the key words is arbitrary. I mean that that again, that yeah. word is critical. I'm anytime I hear a point of view, a strong point of view, uh, a framework, a mental construct. I will try to break, I will try to break it. Now I'm not a disagreeable, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too cynical, but I will try to break it. It, Is this, is this absolute truth? And because of the word arbitrary, I think I know the answer, but let's take a sales department, a sales department. Can targets be acceptable if they're not arbitrary?
1: No. Well, 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 I mean, well, uh, <laughs> well, why would you have a target that isn't arbitrary? Um, you know, because the only thing you could set as a target that's not arbitrary is like, you know, well, let's do what we did last year. Well, that's no good, is it? Uh, but let me talk about sales departments. You know, um, you know, what you find with targeting sales departments is that it drives people to sell what the bosses want sold, uh, you know, products and lines and, and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't help you serve customers because, you know, it's not fitting the demand that we're getting from customers. So, so I mean, for example, just one example, we, we work with the second largest uh, uh, insurance company in Denmark, where, and this is about life products. Uh, and the first thing we had to do is to help the leaders study to understand how the system was sub-optimizing performance. And in this case, it means getting away from customers who could have bought something. Okay, uh, And when you understand customer demand and move the expertise to the front so you can effectively underwrite according to people's needs and give up this stupid idea you've got to sell this product and that product, sales went up by 35% in the first year. And you know, and they're getting more customers and the customers are buying more product because well, why? Well, because they feel the whole process is listening to them and meeting their needs. So Well, there's a radical thought, isn't it? You know, but, you know, you use – everybody thinks, you know, salespeople should have targets. Well, I'm not everybody. <laughs> and, yeah, and i tell you another really interesting thing about sales while we're on sales is, you know, we, we give people in call centres all these sales targets, and, and these call centres are generally inbound call centres. One of the things I get managers to do is to listen on the phones about part of the studying work. And every time a customer buys something, I want them to consider whether that conversation represented a pull from the customer or a push from the agent. And you know what you learn? More than 95% of the time it's a pull from the customer. So why the fuck are we doing sales training with the agents? Really? You know, why don't we, why don't we get them more into a pull mode? So, you know, so my first task in listening to a customer is to understand what matters to this customer, have a dialogue about what matters to this customer, because if I can do that, then we're on the road to meeting their need. And, you know, ergo, you're going to sell something. It's not rocket science, is it?
0: No. Targets are typically tied to incentives. Yeah. Can I read a quote from the book, which, okay. by the way, this is brilliant. I'm not going to read the full quote. It's a full paragraph. But it says... And again, this is on incentives. Psychologists know something that managers consistently ignore. Incentives yeah. systematically get you less of what you yeah. want, not more. Yeah. You kind of said that. And then I want to yeah. just say the last sentence in this paragraph. Make the numbers, get the prize, getting that, that being uh, in, in quotes, that is the prize and that becomes the purpose so, targets sometimes tied to incentives, and incentives can be a really, really bad thing. And we've got yeah. science to support it, right?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. But because people chase the opportunity to get get the incentive, well, and they can destroy the system in doing that. Yeah, but I, I must say this: that you know, uh, the best book. That summarizes all of this research is Alfie Cohn's book. That's K O H N I don't know yeah. if punished yeah. by reward.
0: I have thanks to you, I have the book and, and that's where that is coming from. And and again, thank you for introducing him because I was not familiar with and it's a good book, by the way. Yeah.
1: Great book. Yeah, there's a broader point here that relates back to the work of Deming. You know that when you when you design an organisation, you don't want to design an organisation where people people are being bullied by carrots and sticks and all of that stuff. Okay, it's it's intrinsic motivation that brings people to work, that makes people care, that makes people do a good job and care about their job. Uh, And so, you know, in a systems design. Because we're focused on the customer, because we're focused on solving problems, because we've got the measures to help us understand how well we're doing that, we are motivated like hell to be better at it every day.
0: Before we move on to budget management, I do want to make one last yeah. comment. As I was reading, sure. as I was rereading this, I forgot some of this. I'm thinking, oh gosh, what's he going to say about profit sharing or will it even come up? And you did All bring right. it up. The reason profit sharing yeah. is is of interest to me is I am a practitioner of transparent reporting, a big believer of transparency in the business. And -hmm. I believe it starts with the inner culture of the leadership team or the founder. And I even wrote a note to myself as I was reading this. I I hadn't come across your comment about profit sharing. I made a note and emailed it to myself, and I just stated that a profit sharing system is not an incentive plan, or it's not supposed to be it is based on the culture of the owners it's it's they mm-hmm. want to share hey if we if we win you win too has nothing that's to do great. with well by the way i read a little further and you state that profit sharing it's 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 has no, it's has nothing to do with with incentive plans as you described and so yeah. i appreciated that i know that's a sidebar but Again, thumbs up to your comment yeah. about profit sharing.
1: The, the, the psychological issue is it's non-contingent. It's not right. do this to
0: get that. Exactly.
1: It's it's we've been successful. Let's share the joy and the money.
0: Before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about budget management. It's either chapter three or chapter four. Uh, there, there's, again, a whole chapter on budget management. Uh, I have an fp background I do a lot of driver-based financial modeling. By the way, not from a control standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, really trying to trying to quantify the system and the the. I hate budgeting. I, I learned to hate budgeting uh, very early in my career because I saw this is a big waste of money. I worked in retail, and we spent three months getting on airplanes. Uh, flying to locations, getting input from managers. We get all this, compile it, and then the first week into the year, our assumptions are busted. And so this young 30-something out of KPMG who thought he knew everything, he did have one thing right. Budgets are stupid. (laughs) But (laughs) I I loved your chapter on budget management. Would you rewrite anything in the chapter if you were to release this book again?
1: No, not really. I'd write more of the same, I think, because we've done more work along those lines. But, you know, the thing that tickled me when I discovered it, you know, here's this, it's a question I often ask the management audience, who invented budget management? And, boy, it was James McKinsey. Yes. Solving a problem for Alfred Sloan 100 years ago. Nobody knows whether it solved Alfred Sloan's problem, but it became, it publicised, it became normal. Everyone found it attractive. Or oh, this will give us control. But the reality is it doesn't. Uh, And it's not only, you know, the waste of time that you describe and the frustration and all the rest of it. You know, when we help managers study their system, they see our adherence to any kind of financial control is distorting what the system's able to do. And it's not controlling the costs. It's actually increasing the costs. Well, you know, now you've got them in a place where they might start thinking differently
0: about controls, we in in my world, John, and and of course I'm a finance guy. But that's that's my training, and I have to apologize for that uh, to an <laughs> occupational <laughs> psychologist. I say I admire your, I admire <laughs> and appreciate uh, your background. I will say this, and I lo- I did learn this early on, maybe just through street smarts or being around some great teachers, but I never have looked at the word cost taking it seriously, Uh, especially from a modeling standpoint. I've always have looked at expenditures in three buckets. There's the capacity bucket, there's the Mm -hmm. capability bucket, and then there's the compliance bucket. Now, if we want to talk about cost reduction, let's focus on the compliance part that no one likes. But when we start thinking about costs, I don't hear, except for you, I don't hear talk much about capacity, where we either no. let's spend uh, let's spend money to increase it, uh, yeah. protect yeah. it, maintain it, yeah. support it, yeah. and the same way with capability. You know what we bring to our customers. So that yeah. is my mindset when it comes to costs. And you don't yeah. budget for that. You 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 you're a stewardship of mm-hmm. those two big yeah. C's: capability yeah. 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 and capacity.
1: Yeah, um, we're on the same page. If you know, if you understand how to measure your capacity and improve your capacity, the numbers will look after themselves. If you understand your current capability to serve customers and you improve on that capability, the numbers will improve on their own. And so, you know, you start to understand the difference between a leading measure, uh, so understanding capacity, capability, and a lagging measure, how much did it cost? And so you start disregarding the lagging measure as a means of control. Uh, it's just keeping score.
0: Exactly, Uh, which is
1: why it shortens the whole budgeting cycle because you've got rid of the bullshit and the gameplay.
0: I have three more topics, and you can pick any one that you want. I want to be sensitive to your your time. Uh, I you have a whole chapter on HR. You have a actually you have three. It's a section, not just one chapter, but you could say it's about three chapters on IT. And yeah. then we've already have talked about incentives and reward systems. So I kind of cheated on that when we were talking okay. about targets. Okay. You want to hit IT or you want to hit HR?
1: Oh, well, I, I think IT is the more important one. Only, only in the sense that, I mean, well, HR has been responsible for a lot of the diseases. Well, because in a sense, HR has been brought into command and control organizations to deal with their dysfunction. Um, so, you know, but the, I, 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 that's what I discuss in that chapter and lots of examples of it. But the more important one right now is IT because, you know, we've had this nonsense called Agile, which is supposed to be the antidote to waterfall and, and solve all the problems of large-scale uh, IT change where well, they clearly haven't solved the problems. Um, and indeed, I mean, I write in the book about the day I met Agile uh, you know, and I give an example of a service organisation where we'd help the leader ra- radically transform performance. And then because head office sent agile people in, uh, well, I, I watched them uh, come and play and fuck it up. I mean, it was just, and, and, you know, when they'd understood that they fucked it up, they put it back to the way I'd helped the managers design it. Uh, and then they said, well, this is OK, John, because we do fail fast. And I'm saying to them, why fail, you idiots? It's because they make change with no knowledge. You know, Agile starts with, let's dream stuff up. Let's have personas. Let's imagine. I mean, really? And when you've got, you know, on a service organisation, you've got all your customers creating demand at the front end. You've got all this failure demand. You've got all this value demand. They're telling you what matters to them, and you ignore that, and you... You know, let's think of Joan. She's a 42-year-old single mum with two kids, and how does she want to interact with us digitally? Oh, please, really? Um, you know, so it all starts with dreams. like service design starts with dreams. Uh, I don't like starting with dreams. I think change should be based on knowledge. And, and now, you know, now now we're getting all the chorus of people saying, well, that child doesn't work, and Scrum ain't working, and well, I you know, could have told you so. They're still spending a bucket of money on it. And why are they doing that? Because they're all thinking that digital's the future. Well, why are they thinking that? Well, because digital's a lower transaction cost. Really? So I describe in the book how so many digital services are making it worse for customers because people don't understand what a digital channel can do and can't do. So they shove everything down it. They get bonuses for the volume of transactions through the digital channel. They have no idea the extent to which it's creating fairly demand elsewhere in the system, the extent to which it's pissing customers off, because that actually doesn't matter.
0: I wish there was a way that you could underline people's words as you do in a book. You use the word knowledge twice. And I want to bring that up because one of the hallmarks or one of the starting points with the Vanguard method is gaining knowledge first. So I yeah. that was my first. Yeah. As you're talking, I would yeah. just that's critical. Yeah. I, I the reason the, the reason I have this as as a bullet point for this lightning round is I'm a huge fan, and I'm not embarrassed to say I'm a huge fan of Steve Blank. And I don't know how prevalent that name is outside. Of the U.S. He's one of the great teachers for entrepreneurial startups, especially in Silicon Valley. He has a famous student who sold probably a million books, uh, Eric Reese. Uh, Eric took probably the words of Steve Blank and made them more accessible uh, for uh, for people like me who have a pea sized brain. He yeah, wrote yeah. he wrote the Lean Startup.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I read it.
0: Yeah. Do 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 you get sometimes some pushback uh, from that camp from the edge is there a meeting of the minds oh, because because well, okay. I I would think there <laughs> okay. I think there would be I would think that the agile people say uh, the, the Vanguard method that uh, that really? worked that makes sense
1: uh, well I'll a big following amongst IG people maybe we'll talk about that in a second but you know I, I consider the lean startup uh, you know basically it's a, it's a whole book and all it says is when you get when you when you start something up, you better get through to test it as quickly as you can. That's yes. all it says. Yes. That's a very sensible sensible thing to say. Um but however I get a little lot of pushback from the general lean community uh, because the lean community is sort of a flogging Toyota in a box um and ono who built the toyota system said never sell it in a box they'll think the brains are in the box you know don't codify method but that's what they've done yes and indeed they encourage people to standardize the work uh, womack and jones in their book Lean thinking says the first thing you got to do is standardize the work you do that in a service organization you prevent the system from absorbing variety your costs go up and they do it everywhere Uh, these people are mad you know they think the magic's in so so i get a pushback from Lee. but let's go back to the it thing because knowledge because as you'll know from reading the book our approach with it is start without it you know i I talk about it last not first exactly so the first step is get knowledge study the what and why performance as a system for this service second step now let's improve that without touching the IT other than turning it off. Third step, now let's pull the relevant IT into this design to make it even better. Now the big improvement comes in step two and the solidity of that improvement is wired in in step three and you get a more marginal improvement. But the most important thing is all the code you write gets used. There's a thing. And the IT people love doing stuff that works. So they get involved in all those steps, get the the study step, the redesign step, and the pull the IT step. And they know exactly why they've got to do what they do.
0: And to me, that makes sense. I, I would just be intrigued about people who would push back and say, no, maybe that's people who love technology more than what the customer wants, more than the system, maybe the... The technology is is tr- trying to trump
1: the system,
0: and, and so it's a case where it's maybe a
1: pushback. Well, the technology companies, you know, I've I've okay. been approached many times by big technology companies. They go, "Hey, we hear what you're doing; it's really interesting." And when I when I fully explained what it means to do understand, improve, pull, it lasts. They kind of go off the idea. Uh, well, why? Well, because it won't make so much money. And I say to them, well, no, your position in the marketplace ought to be, it's a load cheaper, and it's more effective, and it always works. Now, customers are happy. That's a bit of a radical idea for a software company. But no, they're not interested in that. You know, they make money out of selling lots of bodies.
0: I I want to go back to something you said on Toyota. So TPS, uh, Ono, Lean. And and by the way, I, I want to be transparent I, I like lean. I believe in many of the lean uh, principles, but I'm yeah. using the word principles. It's To me, yeah. it's not, I'm not, yeah, I yeah, yeah. don't want to be ever uh, legalistic, but there are sure. principles. I really, just the whole concept of waste. <clears throat> and that may be my favorite concept is where is waste in the system? Where's waste that's keeping my customer from being more loyal, uh, more happy. But you say something about uh, uh Benchmarking, I love. You don't like it, and there's a reason you don't like it. I want to answer it, but no, you get to say why. And let's do it this way. What can be unhealthy about going to observe someone that's effectively doing TPS, the Toyota production system, they go home and let's implement it. What is unhealthy about that, John?
1: Well, the the problem Occurs that your mental model could get in the way of what you see. That's basically it. I mean, this happened. This happened. Remember, in, in well, you probably know this is a UK thing. You know, in the 1970s, when Margaret Thatcher was in power, uh, in the early 80s, and no, in the 70s. She sent a load of people over to Japan to find out about the Japanese miracle, and that was what created TQM in the UK. Those people who visited didn't see the thing that they needed to see. They saw the physical manifestations of people solving problems. They didn't understand they're working in a place that's understood as a system. Um, you know, and then you get the same with industrial tourism, as I call it, uh, you know, I call it benchmarking. I call it industrial tourism, but they go along and they, they look at it and they go, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, it might be better with a few targets and that, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. I'm going to play. Uh, I'm going to plagiarize that term industrial tourism. I, that, yeah. that, that, that yeah. that's a good one. You need to trademark, uh, that term, I, I, the whole, the, the, what you just said, I like it. It's, you said it very succinctly, the P when we, when we follow benchmarking studies, or when we look at other people's okay. metrics, it's like, forget, study your own business first, go back and okay. study, be, be a student okay. of your own business. And then, then things are going to get flushed out of what, what's not working again, exactly. that inside that outside in, thinking yeah. again this is great stuff
1: yeah people people think you're going to learn some magic but you know you know and you're right I mean Ono said this he said you know he said don't go to other places everything you need to know is in your system you need to know how to look
0: I also yeah. do when people do ask me what's benchmarking uh, I, I am a little bit cynical and I'll say well it's a three billion dollar industry and and so I don't some people think goes over uh, people's heads but and I know there's some cynicism in that in that response, but I know you're in a different season of life. And even on your website, I'm seeing more content uh, that can be consumed through through tutorials, courses. But yeah. I'm just curious, John. I, I'm just being nosy. Let's maybe yeah. go back 15 to 20 years. Uh, now you still look young to me, but I'm assuming 10 to 15, 20 years ago you were doing more consulting work. What would a typical engagement look like for
1: you? Oh, well, 15, 20 years ago, I'd be traveling around the world talking to people about this stuff. And you know, and my view was that we'll not have a business in a country without a customer So we were picking up customers around the world. We ended up with 11 countries where we've got people uh, doing vanguard. And our our view was we always uh, train indigenous people because a lot of it has to happen in their own language, of course, if you're studying work. Um, So that's what I was doing, Uh, you know, uh, a typical customer. uh, Well, I don't know. Do you want a little? I I, I mean, how about the one I opened the book with? This is a great story. You know, this is the the largest insurer in the UK, and we're talking maybe 14, 15 years ago. This is when it was very fashionable to outsource work to India for a low transaction cost, and they had 500 people answering calls and doing back-office stuff in India and 200 in the UK. And uh, they decided to bring all the work back from India because they're getting grief from their customers over lots of issues, you know, and I'm sure that's happened in America. In America, you tend to outsource to the Philippines, I think. But anyway so anyway, so, uh, we, they had a plan because command and control things have a plan. And of course, if you've got 500 people in you're going to bring all that work home. You want to hire 500 people in the UK, train them and off you go. Uh, and we said, no, put the plan away and we helped them study the work understand the extent of the failure of demand, understand the value demand, this is what customers actually want, well, let's build a, let's build a proof of concept in the UK, we just take a small group of people and we'll get the demand running in there, we'll understand how the service is well, and then we move that forward to a prototype, which is like a, a, a small representative of the organisation they're going to build, and they got that got that working and then they expanded it, we call it about roll in, not roll out, because you got people to understand how this works, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the bottom line is 300 people in the uk serving all the customer demand in an exceptionally better fashion from 700 to 300 who to put that number in a plan
0: it's amazing it's a remarkable story i'm curious have have you ever did you ever meet peter peter drucker Uh,
1: no no a good friend of mine though is a uh, an archivist uh, uh, for the drucker forum and i'm familiar with drucker's work of course uh, but the Drucker Forum seems to me, a bit like a lot of these things, it's kind of turned into a conference thing. It has. You know, they don't they don't kind of they don't they're not they not do not start with let's have evidence. They start with let's have big noisy speakers who are well known and we will get the Gary Hamills of the world, that'll do it. And Charles Handy, you know, okay, oh, great, great.
0: The reason I the reason I asked John, and, and I know when you get two superior intelligent minds together, not everyone's gonna agree. On everything but I have a feeling if 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 you two knew each other you would have been in his inner circle and again that's what I just I love your work I love your writing and I just think it's outstanding which by the way plug the heck out of your work what, what, tell me what you're doing these days
1: what am I doing? Well, it's like you were saying earlier. You know, um, I'm the, I'm now the wrong side of seventy. Okay, you, you're so, so, you're young.
0: You're you're so yeah, young.
1: I, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, but uh, I've given up traveling around the world. I mean, that's that's a game. That is, uh, I I am um, investing a lot of time and effort in. Making resources available to more and more people, and um, and my my approach to it is actually cheapest chips, cheapest chips. You know, I've I've got a basic kind of education product that people can buy for almost next to nothing. They can keep it for six months, train as many people as they want. You know, I've got an e-learning system. Again, you, you have to subscribe to that. Again, cheap as chips. It teaches you all the basics of how to study a transactional service or other services and, and lots of case studies, a bit of theory practice. It's massive. I mean, it took me five years to write it all. Um, so, you know, that's that's available. In uh, the new year, I've decided for a bit of fun, I'm going to do the shortest tutorials on the planet. You know, um, so the first one I'm calling "Demand is the Lever," and I want to do tutorials that will last no more than ten minutes. You know, short, short, punchy, make you think. And I'm going to put those out on the web for free.
0: I ask every author, every guest, this question, and Mm. of course, on the video here, I can see you've got some floating bookshelves with lots of books, so I know that you are a reader. What are some of your favorite books of all time?
1: Uh, Well, I've already mentioned two earlier, Out of the Crisis. Got to read that. Uh, Alfie Cohn, if you're interested in is really, really powerful. He's such a great guy, I think. Uh, Actually, much better than uh, Dan Pink, uh, in my view. Dan Pink has picked it up and done the same thing, but Alfie Cohn is the man. Uh, I like reading Russ Akoff. Um, he's amusing. He's American. Well, he was American. He's dead now, sadly. Uh, And, uh, you know, just don't be fooled here because you're going to see, you know, there's a lot of books behind me here. It doesn't mean to say they're any good, but it just means I read.
0: (laughs) I think that's amazing. Again, John, this has been an honor. I, when you said yes, I just, I was stoked. I was so thankful. And again, this is a brilliant little book my disappointment is I don't know how well recognized you are in the United States. And if that's a true statement, that's a shame, but I'm, I I will continue promoting you indefinitely because I love, love, love (laughs) this book beyond command and control.
1: Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm honored to be part of your podcast series and thank you for that. Um, and you know, I would say to your uh, the American audience that you know what uh, what I know a lot of Americans do is they get the, uh, the the what do you call it? You know, when you speak a book.
0: Oh, the audible, uh, the audio version.
1: Audio, see, thank you. So you see, this is age is getting to me. Uh, so you know, they write to me as they're driving along in their car, they're listening to the audio book, and I had to do the audio book because the book has a bit of attitude in it, and I couldn't get anybody else to have just my attitude. I'm sure you understand.
0: And and by the way, I'm not saying this just because I'm speaking to you, but I did there's about 15 videos that okay, I want to just get I want to get his vibe. And yeah. you are an excellent communicator. And even though again you're in this different season alive, and even though you may not be traveling uh, I am glad that you're doing something where you're behind a mic. You have a great voice. You have a great communicator. You're a great communicator, and I just like the way you bring things across. Thank you, you behind your back, I can say this guy's a likable expert.
1: You're very sweet. Thank you very much. If you've met me when I was twenty-seven, you would understand that I wasn't a great communicator. It's just a lifetime of having to work at it. And I'll tell you what, Mark. You know, you know, I've got, I've got. A, I've got a, travel to Europe. I still travel a bit in Europe, but I also go and do some speeches. I love preparing things for a particular audience. And you know what? It's part of the discipline. I still prepare. I still rehearse because I think my job is to get up there and give them something that makes them think.
0: Again, thanks so much, John. My pleasure.
1: Very nice to meet you. And thank you for doing this. You are listening
0: to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. John Sutton, again, the book Beyond Command and Control. The book will only take you two to three hours to read. I have a feeling you'll read it more than once. During the conversation, it's in the book, it's about budget management and it reminded me of the book, Beyond Budgeting. I think it came out in 01, 02. It's a little dry, but I especially like the part about the guiding principles. They have 12 of these principles and they were grouped into buckets of leadership principles. And I believe the next one is process principles. So here are a few The leadership principles I really like of Beyond Budgeting. Customers, everyone focus on improving customer outcomes. Responsibility, enable everyone to act and think like a leader, not nearly follow the plan. Autonomy, give teams the freedom and capability to act. Do not micromanage them. And then another, values govern through a few clear values, goals, and boundaries, not detailed rules, and, budgets. and here's one of the process principles I especially like, planning. Make planning a continuous and inclusive process, not a top-down annual event. I cannot agree with that more. Again, if you want to learn more, just do a search on Beyond Budgeting 12 Principles. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.